Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Greetings. Welcome to the New Books Network podcast. You're tuned into the New Books in Media and Communication channel. I'm your host, John Sullivan. I am an associate professor of media and communication at Muhlenberg College in Allentown, Pennsylvania. And I'm one of the co-hosts of the New Books in Media. Greetings. Welcome to the New Books Network podcast. You're tuned into the New Books in Media and Communication channel. I'm your host, John Sullivan. I am an associate professor of media and communication at Muhlenberg College in Allentown, Pennsylvania. And I'm one of the co-hosts of the New Books in Media and Communication channel, along with my colleague, Dr. Jeff Pooley. Our topic for today's discussion is digital radio in the United States. But before we talk about digital radio, it may be helpful to add a little bit of context about our other major broadcast medium, television. Now we're well into the second decade of the 21st century, and the transition from analog to digital television broadcasts is all but complete. Thanks to FCC and congressional mandates, which required stations to transition to all digital signals almost exactly five years ago, on June 12, 2009, local broadcasters are now sending only digital signals into the ether. By September 1st of 2015, all analog television transmitters will be shut down. The television industry has made the shift to digital. Consumers have made the shift as well. On streets all over across America, you see old analog TV sets waiting for trash pickup, looking abandoned and forlorn. But what about our other major broadcast medium in the U.S.? How has radio weathered the digital transition? The answer is not so well. My guest today has written an excellent new book all about the troubled trajectory of radio's digital transition. The book is called Radio's Digital Dilemma, Broadcasting in the 21st Century, and it was just published by Rutledge. The author is John Nathan Anderson. Dr. Anderson is Assistant Professor and Director of Broadcast Journalism in the Department of Television and Radio at Brooklyn College, which is part of the CUNY system. He's on the line with me right now. John, welcome to the New Books Network. Hey, thanks for having me. Just uh, by way of background, can you tell me a little bit about how you got interested in this topic, digital radio? What led you to be uh, interested enough to write a whole book about it? Well, um, it was uh, kind of serendipitous in in a way. Uh, I used to be a commercial radio journalist. I graduated uh, my undergrad in 1996, which was the year that the Telecommunications Act of 1996 was passed. And nobody told me what the implications of that would be. I never learned about it in in classes or anything like that. And basically what the Telecom Act did was it decimated local radio ownership. And when large companies began to consolidate their holdings in radio and expand their holdings in radio, one of the first things they did was they killed off local radio news, which is what I went first to school to do. And that whole process was very disillusioning. And so by 
the late 90s, uh, around 2000, I decided to quit my job uh, in commercial broadcasting, and it was a very radicalizing experience, and I became involved in uh, pirate radio uh, at the time, which was actually pushing as an organized social movement uh, for legalization. And so right around the time of 1998-99-2000, the FCC was debating the creation of a low-power FM uh, radio service, non-commercial community radio service. I got very involved in that, and that was kind of my first uh, entree into FCC policy. And while the LPFM, F- LPFM thing was going on, we kept hearing about digital radio and this thing called HD radio and what it was going to do for radio. And it was all in the context of LPFM cannot mess up what the digital future of radio is. So after the FCC got done doing all of its stuff with LPFM and then the fight went to Congress, I decided, huh, well, what is this whole thing that we're talking about digital radio-wise? And that led me to actually start investigating the development of the technology uh, and FCC proceeding that was going on at the same time as LPFM. And from there, I thought... uh, this is a this is a wonderful topic of research, especially since no one had really talked about it. And so it, it was it came about as something that I heard through another proceeding that I was involved in, and then just got curious and started looking into it. And suddenly everything kind of unfolded, and I realized I was sitting on a on a research gold mine. That's great. That's great. And you note, kind of into your introduction to the book, that one of the best ways to kind of understand the development of radio, which has a lot of twists and turns. And there's a lot of actual kind of engineering background that you need to kind of understand some of the debates that are happening. You employ what you call this dramaturgical framework. Can yeah. You, can you explain that a little bit? Yeah. Uh, dramaturgical analysis is something that uh, Irving Goffman, a very famous sociologist, kind of came up with to describe how actors work in certain settings when they try to negotiate issues of power and control. Uh, so, for example, uh, he, he uses a context of like a theater. Uh, you've got a stage you have characters on the stage, you have the audience, you have offstage behavior, and you have backstage behavior. And so if you think about the dynamics that take place in a, in a situation like that, obviously the way people act on stage is differently than the way they act offstage or backstage. Uh, who is allowed on the stage, where the stage is, determines the notion of the performance that's taking place, and who the audience is also has an element of uh, whether or not the play is successful and gets across messages and whatnot. So I basically took that framework to try to explain and create a narrative and demystify a lot of these technological and policy intricacies that come up in the digital radio proceeding. And it turned out to be a very um, straightforward way of being able to uh, examine where the power lies in the digital radio transition, who the primary constituencies were, uh, what the FCC's role was, and most importantly, what the role of of independent broadcasters and the public at large was. Um, so it's something that's been used quite a bit. I don't know if it's something that's been used very often in media policy studies, but it's incredibly applicable. And a lot of people that do media policy kind of talk around this issue or even use very similar terminologies. I just happened to pick a definable methodology, you know, and it worked out, it worked out well. That's great. Can you say a little bit about what what kind of uh, sources you used for your research? How did you find kind of the evidence to track down this trail that led you to understand uh, digital radio? 
Well, uh, I basically used uh, uh, three primary sources. The first one was uh, the Federal Communications Commission's documentation and the entire uh, corpus of the policy proceeding governing radio's digital transition. Uh, the FCC, within the last 15, 20 years or so, actually has created an electronic comment filing system uh, where people, uh, constituencies of any sort, can actually upload documentation uh, into the record for the FCC to consider uh, as a policy debate. And uh, one of the cool things about radio's digital transition is pretty much the entire policy uh, discourse was captured electronically. So the entire archive of all the public comments and all the decisions that were made are available online. And then I supplemented that uh, with basically a review of the major radio trade publications. Uh, and there were, there were two of them primarily. One is Radio World, uh, which is a biweekly newspaper that comes out and it targets uh, radio executives, managers, engineers, uh, and other professionals. And the other one is Current, which is the same kind of trade publication newspaper for public broadcasters. And what I was really looking for was, okay, what are the people who are in favor of or who oppose each? radio saying in the official policy proceeding versus what they're saying off stage uh, in the trade press. And it turned out to be a really interesting uh, discussion because what they were saying in one venue was not the same thing uh, they were saying in the other venue. From a research aspect, it was incredibly easy to put together. I downloaded a ton of PDFs uh, and then I made a trip to the Library of Congress um, because Current and Radio World had not yet digitized their archives. And I basically looked at everything uh, that they had written on digital radio from about 1988, which was when uh, the idea of radio's digital transition first kind of appeared uh, in industry consciousness all the way up until 2011, 2012, or right before uh, the book manuscript was due. Okay, great. So kind of take us through a little bit of the history here uh, for our listeners. Kind of started out, if you will, maybe in the early 90s. What was the idea for digital radio in the early 90s? And then what was the impact of, let's say, the Telecommunications Act of 1996 on the trajectory of digital radio development. Okay, well, um, originally, uh, digital radio was not on the minds of anybody uh, in the radio industry until the FCC opened up a proceeding to authorize uh, the creation of a satellite radio service, which we now know as Sirius XM. And uh, back in those days, it was considered a new form of broadcasting, uh, but uh, it was going to be subscription-based, so it wasn't exactly equal to terrestrial broadcasting, which is free uh, to receive. Uh, but it scared the pants off of broadcasters because uh, satellite broadcasting was going to be wholly digital. And back then, uh, even though it was 20 years ago, there was still a lot of confusion about what it meant, what, what digital actually meant. Um, and the biggest concern that broadcasters had was this new service was going to provide uh, more quality programming uh, at a higher fidelity and would eat their lunch. Uh, so kind of in a reactive fashion, uh, the uh, broadcast industry started to look at various elements and various technologies for, for making the digital transition. And originally they had agreed on uh, the, the same type of technology that's being used in Europe. Uh, Europe has adopted a technology that's very similar to what you were talking about in your intro. It's a digital radio system that involves all new spectrum, so it doesn't interfere with the analog system. It's brand new spectrum, brand new transmitters, brand new receivers, and once that is set in place, the idea is then you switch off the analog and everything is digital. Well. 
In the United States, the spectrum on which the European digital radio standard worked was being used by the Pentagon, and the Pentagon used it for military testing, uh, missile testing, flight testing. And uh, there was no way that broadcasters were going to be able to wrest control of spectrum from the military-industrial complex. So the whole idea initially of adopting the European standard went completely out the window, and that happened in in the very early 90s. Um, And so the broadcast industry was kind of left going, what are we going to do? And what they decided they were going to do was basically invent a whole new homegrown technology uh, from whole cloth. Um, And that process uh, was pretty, I'm trying to think of a good word, half-assed. How's that? It was pretty half-assed throughout the mid-90s because uh, physics dictates that it's very difficult to put new energy on the radio spectrum where existing signals exist. And and their new technology was going to put analog and digital on the same spectrum. Um, And it kind of wobbled and people weren't sure if it was going to work. But then the Telecommunications Act of 1996 took place. And that provoked a ton of industry consolidation which also uh, brought a bunch of capital into the radio industry, the likes that it had never really seen before. And faced with this wonderful largesse and a new creation of centralized economic power within the industry, uh, those big broadcasters decided to place their bets with this homegrown, half-assed, not-quite-working-yet technology. Um, And so if you look back at kind of 1996 and the Telecom Act, uh, had that not happened, uh, the current U.S. digital radio standard probably would have withered and died on the vine, but instead it got a massive amount of subsidy from these brand le- uh, the brand new uh, consolidated broadcasters. And from there, the whole notion of HD radio or the U.S. standard being in- inevitable kind of became a point of truth, uh, which ultimately opened up a huge uh, dispute within the industry and between the industry and the FCC and the public over the merits of the technology and the rationales for actually going digital. So uh, initially it began as a reactive thing to a new digital media system, which acted kind of like broadcast radio. Then it became an issue of self-protection and basically a mechanism by which broadcasters attempted to control their own future by defining the technological bounds of how they would make the digital transition. So you would think with something as important as the history, or sorry, the the future, rather, of radio moving into the 21st century, that this would be the kind of topic that the Federal Communications Commission would have a pretty strong vested interest in wanting to guide and to shape in ways that would help the American public. Uh, You have a great quote in uh, the book kind of in the middle of the book from former FCC Commissioner Michael Kopp saying yeah. that this was, uh, that digital radio was a great example of the FCC's quote-unquote faith, faith-based regulation uh, regarding the digital radio rollout. Uh, was he right? What, what's the, what happened to uh, the FCC here in its uh, attempts to try and foster the uh, development of digital radio? Uh, well, the short answer is, is the FCC didn't do anything. Um, 
Uh, it's 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 good to look at this in the context of the decade that came before the 1980s. 1980s saw uh, the imposition of neoliberal policy across many aspects of our of our environment, uh, media and otherwise. Um, there's a very famous quote from Reagan's FCC chairman Mark Fowler, who said, "You know, television is nothing more than a toaster with pictures." The idea was that the media is just like any other commodity, and we should treat it like any other commodity. And therefore, the FCC really doesn't have a place. Uh, trying to get into all this special regulation involving media systems. Um, and also in the 1990s, let's not forget that the internet was coming of age. Uh, the public internet was coming of age. That's when the World Wide Web was launched, and that's when the privatization of the internet backbone took place. And really, that became a policy focus uh, for the FCC that remains in effect to this day, which meant that pretty much anything having to do with broadcasting, especially radio broadcasting, totally fell uh, on the bottom of the priority pile within the FCC. So instead of the FCC actually being engaged in this process and asking questions like, what would a digital radio system operate like? How would that actually work in the public interest? They basically ceded the field to the industry and said, you guys come up with your own technology. You guys come up with your own system. And if you can justify it well enough to us, we'll simply sign off on it. Uh, when the technology actually went up for approval uh, in the FCC in 2002, you're right, Michael Copps got up there and he, he said, you know, uh, there's a lot of things that we don't know about HD radio, including how it works in the real world. But... Uh, we think it's going to be great because it's a wonderful example of a public-private partnership and blah, 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 blah. Now, which really, I think, is the money quote when it comes to the, the willful ignorance uh, that the FCC um, demonstrated when it came to the entire digital transition. And when they did start to consider issues about radio's digital transition, it was done primarily through an economic paradigm. So when uh, the largest controllers of industry revenue banded together and went to the FCC and said, we support this technology, the implicit uh, a point they were trying to make was the largest controllers of revenue are the radio industry, uh, when in effect, uh, the largest controllers of revenue actually represent a minority of actually licensed broadcast stations. So you had this disjuncture between the economic, the, ideolo the ideological principles of regulation versus how the media system actually works in the real world. And uh, in a lot of ways, it's a, it's a story of tragedy and farce. Um, and always in hindsight, things look uh, maybe worse than they were in, in the moment, but uh, that's what historians do. So so there's another kind of player here, a kind of intermediary, if you will, between the, the kind of industry players who are pushing what became HD radio and the FCC, who is trying to craft a, a guiding set of principles for digital radio. And that's this National Radio Systems Committee, or NRSC. Yeah. Can you explain what that entity is and what role it played in the development of digital radio? Sure. Um, the NRSC, uh, there's actually a companion uh, organization called the NTSC, the National Television Systems Committee. Um, and basically these committees are industry organizations where various constituencies, um, broadcasters, transmitter manufacturers, receiver manufacturers, you know, anybody that's involved kind of in the transmission reception chain, they all get together and they all attempt to uh, find consensus on technological standards. So in a lot of ways, it's a private organization that develops technologies and standards, which then, uh, once they're certified by this private organization, 
go to the FCC for formal approval. In the digital television transition, the FCC actually had seats on the National Television Systems Committee and participated regularly in the process. Um, in the digital radio transition, the FCC pretty much said, we don't want to have anything to do with the National Radio Systems Committee. We trust uh, their technological prowess, and we feel confident that whatever they come up with will be a good thing. So what they did is they basically put the what, what Paul Starr calls the, t- the constitutive choices, the constitutive decisions defining a new media system in the hands of private actors. Uh, and within the National Radio Systems Committee, broadcasters effectively conducted a coup uh, by which they either got people who did not like the technology off the, off the committee or they inherently marginalized them. So as the technology was being developed and there were concerns about its inherent functionality, receiver manufacturers started raising the alarm and broadcasters started to smack them down. And eventually the, the co-chairs of the National Radio Systems Committee were engineers at companies that had investments in developing HD radio. And uh, when big decisions were coming up, like here's the standard we've come up with, let's certify it, dissenters were coerced into abstaining to create the perception that the National Radio Systems Committee was actually unified behind the HD radio standard. Now, in the the olden days, pre-neoliberalism, it was totally appropriate for the Federal Communications Commission to do its own independent analysis and research of new technologies, and it was often very proactive in the development of those new technologies. Uh, But in the case of digital radio, uh, the FCC basically washed its hands of any responsibility, did not do due diligence on the science that was presented to them as being robust and truthful, and essentially signed off on everything. So in a lot of ways, uh, the constitutive decisions of digital radio were made completely outside the public realm, and there was no recourse really for anybody who wasn't affiliated with major broadcasters to have any sort of say in the process. Thanks for that explanation, because it's sometimes difficult to understand what these kind of uh, committees do, but they actually turn out to be quite important in the development of the technology. For every good drama, there is a subplot. And for me, the subplot in your book is really the, the role of national public radio. Yeah. So you have these big industry players, which you might expect are pushing a technology that they know is going to make them a lot of money. But in a way you really document in in fascinating ways how national public radio emerges as a critical partner to these large industry uh interests in trying to push a certain standard for digital radio. Can you say a little bit about that? What, what What's the role of NPR here? Sure. Um, NPR actually was probably one of the critical players in HD radio, especially at the most troublesome times in its developmental uh, history. Um, and the reason why NPR did that was because they were looking to preserve some semblance of agency in the digital transition. NPR was looking back to what happened to non-commercial stations back in 1934, uh, when the FCC was actually set up. So back in 1934, when uh, the FCC was created and the radio band was completely reorganized, um, 
uh, non-commercial broadcasters, the early public broadcasters, if you want to call them that, uh, were inherently marginalized and uh, became kind of a subservient, uh, uh, posi- had, took a subservient position to commercial broadcasters. And in fact, National Public Radio as an institution wasn't created until 33 years later in 1967. And there's always been this kind of uh, latent discomfort within public broadcasting that they're uh, they're kind of the, the subservient players to whatever commercial radio wants. So when uh, consensus was developing around creating a homegrown digital radio technology, one of the main engineers of uh, National Public Radio said, if we want to maintain a position of semblance and authority and autonomy in the new digital radio landscape, we have to work with these people. Uh, if you can't beat them, join them. And that was a decision that was made very early on uh, in the uh, developmental trajectory of HD radio. Then, as the technology began to proliferate, NPR intervened in uh, many critical ways. Uh, number one, uh, they got the Corporation for Public Broadcasting to invest tens of millions of dollars in helping radio stations convert to HD, which involves uh, buying a lot of new hardware and some new software. Um, they also intervened in the policy process uh, to make to encourage the notion of unity within the radio uh, industry uh, to the FCC. Uh, so, for example, we saw the same thing happen with the creation of that low-power FM radio service I was telling you about. Uh, activists went forth and said, these are fleet power stations, they're not going to hurt anybody. And the NAB and NPR teamed up and said, oh, it's going to cause oceans of interference on the, on the dial, we can't let this happen. And Republicans in Congress believe the NAB because they believe trade industries, but the Democrats in Congress believed NPR because NPR is seen as kind of this objective, impartial, empirical based organization. So they were able to leverage their own institutional legitimacy and political clout and taxpayer subsidies at critical moments in HD radio's development and proliferation to keep the technology alive and also to attempt to improve it. Uh, HD radio uh, has many functions attached to it. Probably the most well-known of it is something called multicasting which basically allows an FM uh, HD radio station to broadcast more than one signal, kind of like HD television stations can. NPR invented multicasting because it looked at HD radio after a decade of development and said, oh my gosh, this is not a good technology. It does not have a killer application yet. We need to figure out some way to go and create something. So it created uh, the primary application that HD radio is is used for now. So NPR was a critical funder. Uh, a critical political backer, a critical scientific innovator uh, within this new digital radio system. And what's fascinating to me about that fact is that it had didn't have necessarily an actual monetary benefit for NPR, but it allowed NPR to perhaps retain some influence over the development of digital radio. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. And also, uh, one of the things you have to remember is after the Telecom Act of 1996 and this whole orgy of consolidation that took place, these large players in the broadcast industry were incredibly burdened with debt. 
And so, uh, whereas in the early 90s, uh, conglomerates could invest research and development funds in digital radio, in the late 90s and early 2000s, they were tapped out by going on this buying orgy. So the, one of the only institutional main players that still had research and development uh, prowess was NPR. And so NPR kind of stepped in and provided um, uh, innovation and monetary value and straight-up money uh, to the proprietor of HD radio, like I said, at, at critical moments where the technology's future was really, uh, you know, a, a potential concern. So this, uh, just kind of taking it up through now to the beginning of the 21st century. So there's a lot of, this is almost like you can see where the drama is going in, in the book and you know how the story ends, but that doesn't make it any less dramatic when you see it unfold through the pages. So it's moving towards 2002 and this trade group, if you will, that now controls all the patents to this new technology called Ubiquity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they are able to convince the FCC to officially bless their technology for digital radio, this in-band digital radio, um, as the new standard for digital radio in the U.S. And the FCC says, okay, stations, now you can begin rolling out this technology at will throughout the United States. What, what happens? Uh, not a lot of stations picked it up. Uh, one of the things that, that's important to remember about HD radio is what I call its fundamental detriments, and, and basically there are three of them. Uh, the first one is is when you put analog and digital signals on the same spectrum, you create the potential for interference. Um, and in order to accommodate the new digital signals adjacent to every HD radio station, uh, they're broadcast at a lower power level than the analog signal, but they still take up more spectrum and they can interfere with their neighbors, which ultimately diminishes the quality of everyone's radio signal, analog or digital. The second fundamental detriment is because you're trying to squeeze new digital signals onto the analog dial, you don't have a lot of bandwidth. You don't have a lot of capacity to uh, to do awesome new things uh, with the digital radio signal. So what HD radio actually provides, like sound quality-wise and extensibility-wise, is fairly underwhelming. And then the third thing, which kind of gets to your point about Ubiquity, is that HD radio is a wholly proprietary system. Uh, Ubiquity is a corporation. It's a private corporation. Uh, and it was funded by uh, the nation's largest broadcast conglomerates, who first uh, gave it research funding by giving it staff and things like that, and then actually started to invest in it millions of dollars-wise. And Ubiquity's business model basically is Microsoft. Uh, they consider themselves a software company, and uh, the CEO of Ubiquity said, very frankly, if you want to broadcast in digital, you need to buy a license from us. So in effect, what HD radio is, is it's a partial privatization of the gatekeeper function to the public airwaves. In the analog world, uh, you had the FCC. If you want to go on the air, you get a license from the FCC. You do that, you're fine. You buy the equipment, you're good, right? In the brand new digital world, you need two licenses to broadcast. One from the FCC to use the airwaves, and another one from this private corporation that uh, allows you to broadcast in digital. And just like Microsoft, Ubiquity has ultimate control over how it uses its technology. There's ongoing fees that uh, commercial stations must pay to use the technology. Uh, and uh, Ubiquity has the rights to revoke your use of technology at any time. Um, and so this is, a, this is a massive transformation of how we get access to the public airwaves. And part of it has been privatized uh, into, into Ubiquity's hands. And 
You take those fundamental detriments together, and most broadcasters looked at that and said, this is a dog. We're just not going to adopt it. And the FCC, uh, to their credit, um, made adoption voluntary because Ibiquity's technology is proprietary. They did not want to force the entire broadcast industry into adopting a Microsoft-style system. So the marketplace was, was going to be the, the determinant of whether this new technology uh, lived or died. And uh, the technology was rolled out in 2012, or 2002, uh, so we're 12 years in now. Um, and uh, the penetration rate and the adoption rate is abysmal. About 13% of all U.S. radio stations broadcast in HD, uh, less than 2% of all radio listening is done in HD, and there is absolutely no uh, mechanism uh, within that the FCC has to encourage uh, stations to adopt this, and there is incredible reticence among all of the broadcasters that exist outside of the conglomerates who backed this technology. They're basically saying, you know, if we, if we adopt this, then you've assimilated us in a certain way and just based on principle and also being you know good stewards of the public airwaves not causing interference to our neighbors we're just not going to do it and so for the last 12 years large broadcasters have kind of said this is the future of radio and the majority of broadcasters who are not part of the conglomerates are saying you're full of it and in the meantime there has been the development of even newer technologies which are appropriating the identity of what radio is if you go and you talk to like a student in my classes or your classes you say what is radio uh they're gonna say Oh, it's Sirius XM, or it's Pandora, or it's Spotify, as well as broadcast radio. And so while the broadcast industry was dickering around trying to make this kind of half-ass, substandard digital radio technology work, other forms of digital audio distribution have swooped in and are now appropriating the identity in the public's mind of what radio actually is. So what, you know, in, in, in a nutshell, I think what we're dealing with here with radio's digital transition is market failure. Um, the marketplace is is not accepting the technology. And now uh, broadcasters and I think the FCC, uh, who still has a role to play in this, really need to, to get together and address uh, the dilemma that exists right now to figure out if this is the path that we actually want to use to make broadcast radio go from analog to digital. And if it is, what can we do with the technology to make it uh, more palatable and more useful and, uh, and more functional than it currently is? I can tell you from my own personal experience, I, have, I bought an aftermarket HD radio for my car uh-huh. because I was very excited about HD radio. And the experience of it has been abysmal. Uh, mm-hmm. It cuts out continually. Uh, sometimes stations have HD signals. Sometimes they don't. And my reception for the analog stations that I listen to most regularly in my car, which is where I have the HD radio, they are also degraded to a significant extent. So just as a consumer, I can see that HD radio has not necessarily lived up to its billing uh, in that way. Yeah. And, Another thing I found fascinating, because there's another big player here that we haven't necessarily touched on, and that's the role of the radio set manufacturers, the electronics companies that are would have to encourage consumers to buy new hardware in order to receive the HD signal. What role did did they play in all this? 
Well, uh, back in the late 80s and early 90s, uh, they were very open to considering lots of potentials for radio's digital future, uh, and they were very enamored with uh, the European system, the system that uses new spectrum and everything like that. And the reason was is because uh, that creates a consolidated marketplace for radio receivers. You can make a radio receiver for the U.S. that you can also sell in Germany, and you can also sell in Italy, and you can sell in Hungary or you know whatever. So for, from their perspective, it was great if everyone adopted the same standard because then it would globalize the manufacturer of digital radio receivers. Um, but when um, the military-industrial complex basically said no way uh, and the radio broadcast industry um, had to come up with its own technology, uh, receiver manufacturers, electronics manufacturers, watched it uh, very carefully, and they were pretty participatory in the initial development. But once it became clear that HD radio was not going to work as initially advertised, and it might actually cause more consumer dismay, uh, like you experienced, than uh, consumer uh, enjoyment, uh, that was going to hurt them, their bottom line, because people wouldn't blame the radio station for the bad signal. They'd blame the radio. they think their radio is broken. So in the, in the mid-90s, when all these decisions were being made about whether HD radio was the future for the United States, consumer electronics manufacturers basically stood up and said, you guys are smoking crack. There's, you know, how are you trying to bend the laws of physics to make this work? Don't you see that this is not something that's going to provide this wonderful, you know, world-expanding leap? into the 21st century that digital transition should do. And it was very feisty. Uh, there was a lot of back and forth within the trade press, uh, consumer electronics, uh, trade industry groups did their own scientific analyses of FHD radio, and they came up with very different results from what the broadcasters did. And, and there was back and forth within, uh, within uh, the FCC policymaking. And basically, they got steamrolled. Uh, by the newly consolidated broadcast industry post-1996. So what they ended up doing was they said, okay, fine, um, go ahead with your with your HD technology. That's totally fine. Um, and, then, and then, you know, kind of sotto voce or, or to the audience, uh, they said, but we're not going to make any receivers for it. <laughs> you know, you can have your technology, but we're, we're not going to be involved. And so the technology was rolled out on the broadcast side, and there was no ability to get receivers. They didn't exist in the marketplace. In fact, today, uh, you cannot find a tabletop HD receiver for your home anywhere. Nobody makes them anymore. You, you can find them on eBay. And even on eBay, they cost like $100. Uh, there's one one uh, portable HD radio receiver, and it's manufactured by Best Buy's in-house Korean manufacturer Insignia. It sells for 50 bucks. Um, no one's buying $50 for a radio. And then, and then you mentioned, you know, auto manufacturers. Well, yeah, um, the whole dashboard in cars is changing. Radio used to have a place of primacy in there, and now uh, they're, they're fighting with CDs, they're fighting with DVDs, and now they're starting to fight with streaming audio, iHeartRadio, Pandora, which are all getting places of primacy in the receiver uh, spot, uh, and radio is being pushed back. So basically, broadcasters pissed off uh, one of the key players that makes adopting a new technology possible, and those key players are now kind of having the last laugh because they simply decided not to participate and support the rollout by manufacturing receivers. Um, now, um, consumer electronics manufacturers have moved completely on uh, from radio. Um, one of the things that broadcasters want to do now is put FM uh, chips in smartphones so that, like, if they're
there was a natural disaster and your cell tower went down, you would still be able to pick up programming through the device that the majority of us use to receive many forms of media nowadays. And consumer electronics manufacturers have actually fought that very, very hard by saying, you know, here's this legacy horse and, horse and buggy industry, media industry, that, that has never been able to uh, adapt to the future, trying to force its way uh, into this platform. And, and, and we, don't, we don't like that. So we're not going to support that either. And so in a lot of ways, the electronics manufacturers tried very hard to get radio to realize what it was doing. Uh, and when they realized that they just weren't being listened to, they opted out. And now they kind of have the last laugh. You have this great moment. I think it's from one of the trade journals where you there's some examples of consumers going into Radio Shack and other companies and, and other businesses and asking for HD radio and being directed to satellite radio like Sirius XM and that that represented kind of the worst nightmare for HD radio, that, in fact, cons- what consumers were asking for was being fulfilled by a competitor, uh, and that competitor has kind of risen to the top as one of the main sources of Sirius XM has millions, I think you say 24 million or somewhere like that, of subscribers, which is huge and a major threat to a radio and remains a major threat. Well, I mean, you know, um, in a lot of ways, uh, the whole concept of what radio is is in flux. And it's very hard to make a direct comparison between Sirius XM and uh, like broadcast radio because Sirius XM is a for-profit subscription-based service. They have 23, 24 million subscribers. They're profitable. I mean, they want more subscribers, but it's not like radio broadcasting where the entire mission was to be ubiquitous. So that's why, you know, sure, Sirius XM has 23, 24 million listeners, but uh, over-the-air broadcast radio still has 240 million listeners every week. Um, So if you compare it on that level, uh, it's hard to do the comparison, but People are seeking out content in new venues uh, in, in ways that are not broadcasting. And if you look at the rate of growth of something like HD radio versus the rate of growth of something like Pandora, uh, there is no comparison. I mean, uh, Pandora is widely accepted by consumers. Uh, the app is often built in to smartphones. It is now being built into the glass dashboards of cars. Uh, it is well adopted in the aftermarket automotive marketplace. Um, and the adoptive trajectory for Pandora completely blows HD radio out of the water. Um, but people still listen to radio and they still listen to Pandora sometimes for different reasons. But it's the identity of radio. Uh, that's at flux here. Well, as we kind of move toward a conclusion, uh, what do we do about this problem? Uh, obviously, radio is a vibrant and absolutely uh, necessary medium for the United States. But Robert Chesney calls it our most democratic medium. We need radio. Radio is vital for our democracy. So how do we fix this digital radio problem that we have now? Hmm. Uh, that's a really, really good question, and I don't think anybody has a very clear answer. And even if somebody did have a clear answer, you know, everybody else would disagree with them. Um, in the book, I kind of put forth three potential outcomes of radio's digital transition. The first one is, is we do something about HD radio's problems to make it work. Um, so uh, maybe we need to commit to an analog shutoff date so that we can enjoy 
the full extensibility of what HD radio has to offer. But there's a problem with that because the technology is proprietary. So maybe Ubiquity and or the FCC should re-examine the notion of the business, the licensing business model that, uh, that Ubiquity has put forward and try to do things both to improve the technology, the technology's functionality, uh, and also its affordability, uh, to encourage adoption. Um, that is a long, uh, tortured process that will involve creating consensus between constituencies that are pretty much now in a hate, hate relationship within the industry. You either love HD radio or you hate it. There is no in between and trying to find that middle ground is going to take a lot, a lot of work. Um, the second thing that we could potentially do is uh, investigate alternative technologies. Um, the the spectrum that the military industrial complex used for you know military test uh, missile tests and things like that is no longer being used. Um, so there is the possibility now for the United States to consider uh, the European standard, uh, which is now kind of becoming the global standard. Also, since HD radio's development and proliferation, there have been new digital broadcast technologies uh, that have been developed. One's called Digital Radio Mondial. And it works across the AM, FM, and shortwave bands. And it's being adopted by countries like Brazil, Russia, India, and China. And uh, those those countries certainly have market influence. Uh, so maybe it behooves us to take a look uh, and get up to date with uh, what exists in the digital radio space now and maybe use a new technology. I don't think that's very likely either because the industry spent millions, tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars in this, and they're not going to watch their investment go up in smoke. Um, and then the third thing is, is maybe, huh, maybe consider, uh, looking at the whole t wholesale transformation of radio in a very radical way. Uh, when you mentioned at the top there, uh, the digital television transition, uh, one of the things that's happening now is it's being shown that TV broadcasters haven't used the full capacity of their, of their DTV signals that they were given. You know, we were supposed to get eight channels of really good programming from each station. And, and now we really don't get much of anything. Um, and so the FCC um, is starting to look with covetous eyes at digital television spectrum and repurpose that for wireless broadband. You know, that's the, that's the future wireless broadband. We need more spectrum for wireless broadband. And they're actually in the process of creating a reverse auction by which DTV broadcasters will seed television spectrum to the government. The government will pay them for that spectrum. And then that spectrum will be probably sold off to Sprint and Verizon and AT&T to create new wireless broadband. So in, in many ways, over-the-air digital television is actually diminishing. And maybe the same thing will happen eventually uh, in radio. Um, uh, the National Association of Broadcasters president uh, was asked a couple of years ago about the, you know, the digital television buyback of spectrum. And uh, he, he was asked, could this, you know, is this something that you worry about for digital radio? And his, his response was, well, not really, but, you know, if they can do it to your neighbor, uh, they can do it to you eventually. And, you know, if you think about it, 10, 15 years ago, we didn't know that digital television spectrum would be good for wireless broadband. So there's going to be new innovations that come down the pike, and some of those could be very radical, and they might posit better uses for the radio spectrum than using it to produce radio. Um, that's the most radical outcome, and I think it's the most dangerous because if we lose free over-the-air broadcasting as a discernible medium, 
uh, we're losing a fundamental uh, aspect of our media environment uh, that can't be replaced by anything else. So uh, they're not all, all of those options are not easy. Uh, all of those options are not even quite in the bounds of reality because people are still not looking, uh, willing to look beyond the malaise that exists in the marketplace right now. Um, but, you know, things like malaise and uncertainty in and of themselves often provide the impetus for change. I think it would be much more uh, useful for the radio industry and for the public at large if those changes were made under uh, some sort of provisions that we can control as opposed to waiting for a crisis to take place and then making radical changes where we lose something really important in the crisis. Um, but something's got to give. And uh, the great thing about writing this book is the story's not over. So in 10 years or so, I'm either going to look like a genius or a fool, but also at the same time, uh, I'll hopefully be able to write a second edition because there's actually been stuff that's happened uh, since I published the book. So uh, definitely a story to watch. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of people just don't seem to care about radio anymore uh, as a definable field of study or even as a media policy issue. I think that's uh, too bad. And I hope that the book provides lessons that can help hopefully help more people engage in this process of, of, of navigating and determining how radio's digital transition can work. But I also think that it's a great parable uh, to look at how the neoliberal ideological trajectory of policy process uh, processes can actually destroy media systems uh, if private actors are left to their own devices. So there's a lot going on there, um, and it's down now, so it must be true. And I hope that uh, I hope that it you know enlightens some folks and maybe gets people thinking in other directions beyond the status quo. That's great, John. Thanks so much. Can you tell me a little bit about what you're working on for your next project? Is it radio-related, or are you moving in a different direction? Yeah, no, uh, I have I have tattoos on me. Uh, you can't. I'm, we're, you can't, this obviously won't be in the recording, but uh, one of them is a is a radio tower uh, with uh, little lightning bolts coming out. I have uh, the radioactive symbol, so I'm really a radio guy. Radio's in my blood. Um, I'm, I'm looking at issues of broadcast policy uh, and how they affect uh, media reform and media activism. Um, and I'm also wanting to look at aspects of broadcasting that haven't been uh, popularly acknowledged as being part of our media environment. I really like, and, and I was involved in pirate broadcasting, unlicensed broadcasting, and I've been in, I've been investigating that both as a scholar and as a journalist for 15 plus years now, and I've come to the realization that uh, that phenomenon, the phenomenon of taking access to the airwaves without the permission of any sort of authority, is a universal aspiration that repeats itself across histories and cultures. Pirate radio is something that people do when they don't have any other options, uh, and they do it in every country across every time frame since there has been radio. So I think I'm going to try to write the definitive history of pirate radio as an aspirational medium uh, for... Uh, for our media environment and actually make people realize that, oh, that's part of our environment too. Oh, and, 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 and by existing, it has actually shaped the way broadcasting itself works and how the public, uh, uh, 
makes assumptions about what radio should be. We always talk about the public airwaves, right? Uh, but that's really a, 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 a figment of speech. It doesn't really mean anything until the public actually gets on the public airwaves by throwing up a transmitter, right? And then suddenly that takes on meaning and agency. And so, and it's affected media policy in many ways. So I think the next book, long story short, is probably going to be on pirate radio. It's still going to be a radio book. That's great. That's great. Well, I, I think I speak for everyone when I say we're looking forward to, to reading that. Uh, my thanks to my guest today. His name is John Nathan Anderson. His new book is called Radio's Digital Dilemma, Broadcasting in the 21st Century. It's published by Rutledge. And it is kind of an irony, I will note here at the end, that we're talking about radio, and yet we're doing it in the form of a podcast, one of those new yeah. forms hey, well. that, is, that is set to supplant or at least complement uh, the existing broadcast airwaves with all kinds of new material. But, John, my thanks to you today and for all of our New Books Network listeners. Keep tuned in. Uh, we'll be uploading new podcasts of interviews with authors of new books. So stay tuned to this channel uh, for New Books Network. I'm John Sullivan saying so long. Thank you.